And welcome back to STEM Fatal, your women in science history podcast. We said we'd get you an app before New Year's, but 2020 yeah. doesn't always deliver. So we're here. It's a new year. It's a new us. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Now yeah. you're going to have a nice new app to start off the New Year's. <laughs> exactly. Um... Oh, I don't have... A, do I have a question? Oh, no. Oh, no. Um, oh, yes, I do. I do. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, we're just going to leap into it. Yeah. No funny business Mm-mm. this year. It's 2021. There's no funny business. None. All serious. Straight. Very serious. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay. So, my question is, who was friends with Marie Curie and helped her hide out in England during Marie Curie's big, like, stupid scandal with the French press. Uh, Hertha Ayrton. Yes! Yay! Good job. I would not have been able to pull that name out of a hat. Well, um, we talked about it in our last episode. <laughs> did we? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Who did we talk about last episode? Well, no, in our trivia episode. Oh! We talked about, I'm pretty sure maybe it was the episode before, but we talked about how many, like, of these women in science knew each other, Uh helped mm -hmm. each other, like yes. escape the Nazis and stuff, and yes. I feel like we were on some kind of conversation about that. And then, okay, when I had re-looked up trivia questions about Marie Curie, I read that I remembered reading that tidbit about Hertha Ayrton. Perfect. So that's Perfect. fresh on my mind. I guess I love it. <laughs> Maybe we didn't discuss that exact thing, but it was. I'm pretty sure we did. <laughs> We might have. I don't even know anymore. I know. It's been a few weeks, you know. It's a whole new year and everything's different now. It's true. It's true. I mean, even when we record something, like, the day before, it leaves my head immediately because I have problems. Yeah. I have problems. Okay. Well, yes. Today we are talking about Hertha Ayrton. Yay. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I feel like her name's been brought up a few times and it's like just time we we did it, you know? It's time. We can't avoid it anymore. Yeah. She's kind of a big wig. Yeah. Okay. So Hertha Ayrton was born as Phoebe Sarah Marks. Just completely what? different name. I did not uh, know that. In the town of Portsea in Hampshire, England. On April 28th, 1854. Uh, So I'm going to call her Phoebe for like the first half of this. And then at some point we'll change to Hertha. So don't just stick with me. It's a little confusing. (laughs) So her father was a Polish immigrant who worked as a watchmaker and her mother was a seamstress. And it's thought that Phoebe's interest in invention and tinkering, which we'll talk about later, came yeah. from her father's work as a watchmaker, kind of seeing him toy around with all of the gears. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, their family was pretty pretty poor as as is, but when Phoebe was seven years old, her father died, leaving her mother in, in poverty with seven children and another oh. on the way. Gosh. Can how you imagine do it? I don't know. A lot of cabbage soup. Ugh, that's must have been really tough. Yeah. So Sarah, as the third oldest, had to help raise um the younger children. Just, you know, everybody kind of had to pitch in to keep keep the family afloat. Yeah. Uh however, when Sarah was nine 
She was given the opportunity to move to Northwest London with her aunt and uncle uh, to attend a school that they ran. So despite needing the extra help at home, her mother recognized that Phoebe had great intelligence and talents and supported her moving to London. So uh, I think it was kind of a hardship for her mother to part with her given that they needed, like, all hands on deck. But she knew that, like, this was probably, in long term, the best thing for Phoebe. And she, like, totally supported getting education for women. Oh, that's great. I'm glad. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that would have been hard to lose that help in the house, Mm -hmm. for sure. But maybe there was another older sibling who could help or who already was helping or something. Yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of children so this yeah. someone someone else can help <laughs> they'll all she's like they'll get older they'll help in a, a year or two don't worry mm-hmm. about it go get your education <laughs> yeah so at her new school phoebe was known as a f- fiery occasionally crude personality which is like i'm all about that that's yeah fiery and occasionally crude is <laughs> kind of like my mo <laughs> Uh, <laughs> like, wait, is that this isn't about you? Like, no, just kidding. <laughs> she changed her name to Hertha, then she changed her name to Emlyn. <laughs> so while at school, she was introduced to science and math and took a keen liking to it. Nice, good, good subjects. They are good subjects. At the age of 16, she began working as a live in governess, sending money home to her family at Port Sea to try to help them out. Okay, so it all worked out then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She, I think, ended up being able to probably help more than she maybe would have been if she stayed. I don't know. Yeah, that's yeah, that makes sense. She got a job. Mm-hmm. Um, probably got skills. because she'd been to school, so she was probably tutoring those uh, other kids. Mm-hmm. But it is kind of funny then to like. It's funny to me when people get paid to take care of someone else's kids. But you're not paid to take care of your own, so everyone should just pay each other to take care of each other's <laughs> kids, I guess. Like, I don't know. But yeah, anyway. That's cool. um, so, yeah, so she was this live-in governess, and she became agnostic and changed her name oh. to Hertha at this point. Oh, uh, not, I don't think, I'm not sure legally, but, I, you know, everybody started calling her Hertha. Was Phoebe, and, like, a Christian name or something? No, or just, I, I like, don't... Rep- I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, but Hertha yeah. was a fictional heroine from a poem by Algernon Charles Swinburne um, that criticized organized religion. So I think she just kind of, like, liked the name and it yeah. fit her, like, agnostic image That's of herself. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Uh, so... Hertha, now we're calling her Hertha for, for the rest of this. Okay, cool, cool. Also became very active in the women's suf- suffrage movement at this time. Wow. And so it was in the women's suffrage meeting that she met Madame Barbara um, Bodichon, who was an artist, a prominent educationalist, and the founder of the Girton College of Women in Cambridge. So the only like oh women's college at Cambridge was founded by this woman. Wait, so what uh, year is this again? Sorry. 1870-ish. Okay, cool. So Madame Bodichon introduced Hertha to novelist George Eliot, who, do you wow. know George Eliot's a woman? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah. Her name's really Mary Ann Evans. Um, so Madame Bodichon introduced Hertha to novelist George Eliot, and both women helped Hertha get into Girton College to study mathematics. Cool, yes. This is a, her, her whole story is very much like women helping women. It's very nice. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of, um, I remember reading like a little bit about her when we first started the podcast. Mm, and that's something I remember. Anyway. Sorry. And it it is said by someone, I don't know by who, uh, <laughs> that the character Mira in George Eliot's final full novel, Daniel Deronda, which was published in 1876, bears a strong resemblance to Hertha. Oh. Some say. That's cool. Some say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, So Hertha and her friend Odalie Blind, 
helped quiz each other for the Cambridge entrance exams since there was really few uh, lectures or classes open to women at this time for them to kind of prepare for these entrance exams. So they helped each other study for them. Uh, (laughs) She was accepted to Cambridge, to the like Girton Girton College, um, but she didn't receive one of the two scholarships she would have needed to fund herself uh, through college. However, Barbara Bodichon, George Eliot, and like a bunch of other women all came together to help fund her college. Oh, okay, cool. Some through like just straight up paying for it. And then I think there was also like a small loan for part of it. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And so during her time at Girton, um, Hertha studied mathematics under physicist Richard Glazebrook, uh, led a choral society, founded the Girton Fire what? Brigade. What? It's <laughs> <laughs> really like wearing a lot of hats there. <laughs> I know. Jointly formed a mathematical club and constructed a blood pressure meter known as a sphygmometer oh i wait those things i feel like those actually are a thing (laughs) yeah i cannot pronounce this sphygmometer god i feel like um we use those in like intro bio labs probably Mm. not the exact same ones but maybe i'm just making shit up too (laughs) I, i don't know I can't even pronounce it, so. But yeah, so she had a very full and varied college experience. Yeah. All right. Then, then it's like, in, uh, got a lot of interests. I never knew. Yeah. I don't understand the fire brigade. But maybe she was really worried about her college getting burnt to the ground and no one come. Uh. I don't know. I don't really understand what. Yeah, how that came about, and I found no information about it. So, yeah, everybody mentions it. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe she was afraid of fire. They are. She's just thinking ahead. Maybe (laughs) she's forward, forward thinker. Yeah. All right. So in 1880, she passed the mathematical tripos, which we've talked about previously, which are like these big exams um, that you need to like get your degree. In mathematics. Mm, Okay. Or in any of the, like, more sciences in the UK. So these exams were considered extremely rigorous and demanding, and they consisted of answering hundreds of mathematical questions in back-to-back examinations over the course of a week. Wow. It was so rigorous, in fact, that a few students in the 19th century died shortly after completing their exams. (gasps) What? Like, just from stress? I don't know. Oh, oh my gosh, guys! I mean, correlation is not causation. I can't. We can't say that it was because of the exams that they dropped dead shortly after them. No, I think the exam is cursed. (laughs) (laughs) So these are clearly very like very difficult exams. Whoa, Um, that's like, I just want to tell people (laughs) nothing's worth that, you know? It's not worth it. No, we shouldn't be dying of answering too many math questions. It's like how some movie sets, like The Exorcist is, you know, they're like, all these theories, they're cursed, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe that exam was cursed. Yeah, maybe. (laughs) Um, so despite the fact that she passed this exam, Cambridge did not grant her an academic degree, what? of course, because Ugh. they did not fu- grant give full degrees to women at this time, despite women being required to do all the same work and pass the same tests. It's so... You know. Uh, that's my... One of my biggest pet peeves is, is just that, that we've yeah, talked about so many times, this thing of like, well, sorry, we just don't give them to women. It's like, well, no. You get to decide that you give them to women. Like yeah, it's, it's there's no like higher power that's telling you I know. you can't. And it's like right. you're letting them in. You're they're doing all the same things. They still have to pay, but at the end they don't get anything. That's weird. That's so stupid. <sighs> Anyways, so uh, however, 
not everybody's as shitty as Cambridge. Good, good, good. And Hertha passed an external examination at the University of London, and they granted her a Bachelor of Science in 1881. And the University of London was one of the few universities who granted degrees to women at the time. So women knew that there was kind of like this weird pipeline where if you couldn't get a degree by your university, you knew that you could then try to do this external examination and get a degree from the University of London. That's so interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, better than nothing, I guess. Very I weird. mean, yeah, very odd. So, now now she is she's a degreed woman. <laughs> and she returned to London and earned money by teaching mathematics at the Notting Hill, Notting Hill. Oh. What a good movie. <gasps> I've never seen uh, and, it actually. What? It's a great rom-com. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so at Nine Hill and Ealing High School, and she also made money doing embroidery. Hmm. Uh, look at you can do everything. <laughs> you can do everything. Fight fires school- and embroider and <laughs> make a blood pressure meter. I mean, what can't she do? <laughs> I know. There's the, there's no glass ceiling for this woman. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are, but she shatters right. them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Boom. S- Boom boom, that's that's the sound of breaking glass. Boom boom, boom boom. Yeah. <laughs> Not like or something. No. So at the school, the school that she worked at, she devised and solved mathematical problems and published many of them in Mathematical Questions and Their Solutions in the Educational Times. So wow. she was publishing things. Yeah. So this is after college, but during college, Hertha had invented what's called a line divider. And this is an engineering drawing instrument used for dividing a line into any number of equal parts and for doing, like, enlarging or reducing figures. Okay. Um, so it's kind of like, have you ever used one of those compasses where you can spin it around? Um, essentially, two arms that are connected that you can change the right. angle of. They both have, like, rulers. And so you can set an angle... And then, you know, if you have a a large, like a large circle or something like that, you can figure out how to make it smaller with the same angle. Yeah, I had no idea that was called a compass. That's crazy. Okay, sorry. No, no, you're good. You're good. Um, (laughs) I don't even know if it's called a compass. It is, it is. I just looked it up. Yeah. So, yeah, so she had invited invented this type of line divider so it's not quite the same thing but it's okay. similar that type yeah. of engineering drawing instrument that helps you like yeah yeah enlarge reduce figures keep the right angles stuff like that so this had been her first major invention and after college she decided to try and patent it to support herself financially try to make a little Whoa. money out of this yeah Good. nice so uh louisa goldsmith who is a British philanthropist, and Barbara Bodichon, again, coming always here, uh, she financially supported Hertha's patent application in 1884. Wow. And her invention was shown at the Exhibition of Women's Industries and manufactured by a scientific instruments company and received much acclaim. Cool. Uh, Nature actually reviewed the line divider in January 1885, concluding that it was, quote, a very handy instrument for architects, engineers, and practical drawing. (laughs) Oh, cool. Okay. And a French periodical reviewed it as well and said, quote, it has often been asserted that women are only capable of assimilation and not of invention. The apparatus we have just described is a mathematical proof to the contrary. Hell yeah. Yeah, stupid We're people. Inventors too. Yeah, not assimilators. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. Um, so this was not her only invention, but merely her first, and she ended up patenting twenty six inventions during her lifetime. Wow! Oh my gosh. <laughs> Five on mathematical dividers, thirteen okay. on arc lamps and electrodes, which we'll talk about in a bit, and right. eight on air propulsion. Whoa. Mm-hmm. She's That's a diverse lady. Mm-hmm. 
I like it. Uh, I like just a general inventor who's just always yes. like, you know what we need is this thing for whatever mm-hmm. activity, you know? Yeah. <laughs> or she sees something, she's like, that's pretty shitty. Uh, yeah. I could do, I could make a better one. Yeah, exactly. So while many people urged her to go into business at this time, Hertha had other ideas. Hertha began attending evening classes on electricity at Finsbury Technical College and was one of three women in a class of 120. So she really wanted to continue to be a researcher and scientist and learn more about like electrical engineering. Yeah, that's cool. Her professor at this time was William Edward Ayrton, a oh. pioneer in electrical engineering and a fellow of the Royal Society. Do you see um, where this is, is going? It's like a coincidence that they eventually just, have the same name. <laughs> it's just a coincidence. <laughs> uh, no. So on May 6th of the following year, Hertha and her like professor yeah. at one point, um, yeah. William, were married and she assisted him with experiments and physics on physics and electricity. Wow. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So at the same time, she began doing her own research on the electric arc. And I love this man. So he was a widow and already had like one young oh. daughter. But uh, William admired his wife's talent and was a champion of her scientific pursuits, telling Aww. a friend that, quote, you and I are able people, but Hertha is a genius. <gasps> wow. Hell yeah. He recognized. Mm-hmm. He knew it. Yes. William even set up a laboratory for Hertha in the top floor of their house. And wow. additionally, William had the foresight to not collaborate with Hertha on some projects for fear that he would get the credit for her work. Okay, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> this man knew what society he lived in. Let her do her thing, you know? Exactly. In fact, um, Hertha wrote in, like, an article. At some point, I guess, Marie Curie, they tried to say that the second Nobel Prize should just go to her husband because he had done everything. Yeah. yeah. And so tried to, like, pawn it off as, like, Marie Curie hadn't done the work. Yeah. And uh, Hertha had written into this, written in somewhere, I, I don't remember where. And she had said, quote, errors are no- notoriously hard to kill, but an error that ascribes to a man what was actually the work of a woman has more lives than a cat. Yeah. It's true. I like, read that quote and it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing. And she's right. Yeah. So, like, once, once someone thinks that a man did work that was done by a woman it's really hard to undo that damage right like all of the stuff we talked about with nettie stevens and um was it cecilia Pangaposhkin who was her work stolen by a guy and then mm-hmm. yeah like this has happened so many times it just happens all the time people. yeah like i think a lot of early women in science married men in science partially because they like understood and like yeah. were more accepting and also similar interests yeah. similar interest they were like sometimes gateways to actually get any acceptance into the field right because yeah. people are so uh, there's sexist. a lot of yeah like husband and wife duos mm-hmm. that i've been hesitant to talk about because it's hard to like yeah disambiguate who did what sometimes yeah, yeah, because people assume that the man did almost all of it. So like, right, or like he's the only reason that they're getting any credit or something. Mm-hmm. Which, in some ways, <sighs> is probably accurate because if there wasn't a man on the paper, people would assume that it's bad or something. Yeah, yeah, or just not even listen to it. So like, getting a claim and people actually paying attention to some of the work is probably partially due to there being a man on it. Yeah, but it's not sure. that the man did most of the work. Anyways. Yeah. Tyrant over. Rant over. <laughs> oh, yeah. What uh, are we talking about? I don't even oh, know. Yeah. I mean, how awesome Hertha's husband was. Yeah, right. Uh, so William and Hertha had a daughter in 1886, and Hertha named her Barbara Bodichon Ayrton in honor of Barbara Bodichon, who had acted as 
like essentially Hertha's patron for the past, oh, okay, you know, like right. 10 years. Yeah, that's awesome. And during this time, domestic and motherly duties prevented Hertha from spending much time on her own research. But in 1891, her patron Barbara Bodichon died, leaving Ayrton <gasps> enough money to support both her ailing mother and to hire some help like nurses oh. uh, and maids uh, freeing up time for her to do research. Wow. So this lady was really just like, I need you to discover more things. She was like, all, yeah, she gonna, had a yeah. 100% faith in Hertha. That's amazing. So during this time, electric arc lighting was becoming the like predominant public light uh, in the late 19th century. So it was like right. of great economic importance. They were converting a lot of the like gas and oil lamps to electric arc lighting. And yeah. these lamps consisted of two carbon rods with a charge running between them that produced an arc of light between the rods. So that's kind of how it produced light. Uh, scientists didn't really fully grasp the underlying principles of how this arc light worked. They like knew it worked, but there was a lot of the fundamental principles of like what was going on with the electricity that they didn't quite understand. And so yeah. there was a bunch of problems such as the fact that things flickered and hissed and weren't consistent um, that they didn't really know how to solve because they didn't quite understand how everything worked. If that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So originally, William Arrington had worked on this electric arc lighting, and he'd written a paper on the subject in 1893, but the sole copy of this paper had been burned uh, as kindling accidentally by his secretary, apparently. Oh. So, like, you know, he okay. only had one, he had one copy of it, and I guess no notes of, like, his research, or they were all burned I'm not sure what happened. Yeah. This is why you need backups, folks. I mean, was it... It sounds like it was kind of his notes rather than a paper. Or like he'd written it and not submitted it somewhere or something. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. So... There's got to uh, be more not- notes on it, right? Like... <laughs> I, well, you'd think so. Or maybe he kept them all together and they all got burned. I'm not quite maybe. sure. But essentially all evidence of, like, what he had done got evaporated. And he didn't really have any interest in redoing this work. So he was, like, moving on to other problems. Okay. And so okay. Hertha excitedly took up this research and she kind of redid w- William's work and then proceeded to, like, advance far beyond what he had originally done. Yeah. Okay. So cool. between uh, eighteen ninety five and or no, eighteen ninety five and eighteen eighty six, she published what? a series of. <laughs> sorry, that's between backwards. Eight, it's between eighteen ninety five and eighteen ninety six. Okay. Okay. She published a series of twelve articles on technical and research advance advances in the field of electrical arc lighting in the electrician which was a premier electrical engineering journal at the time that's like an article a month yeah i don't who knows who knows (laughs) she explained that uh, the hissing and flickering were the results of oxygen coming into contact with the carbon rods and so if you encase the whole contraption in a bulb where it wasn't exposed to oxygen uh, to, to open air, Hertha discovered that the hissing and flickering would stop and you'd get, like, a more consistent light. Wow. She also developed equations to better predict the behavior of these lights under different circumstances. Um, right. And this remarkable work on the electric arc won her attention from many other scientists. And she used this knowledge to improve cinema projectors and other arc Lamp technology. Don't ask me any more questions about this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just like, electricity, electricity has always been so just, no matter how many times someone explains it to me, I'll just sit there like glassy-eyed and my mouth like wide open like, what? (laughs) It's a wild thing. So say that again, the ions to the positive. (laughs) It's crazy. Yep. It is. 
1899, she read her paper, The Hissing of the Electric Arc, before the Institute of Electrical Engineers, and she was the first woman to be invited to do so. So that was like a big thing. Okay. Um, Like a big glass ceiling that she broke. And shortly afterwards, she was also the first woman to be elected into the Institute of Electrical Engineers. Wow. Okay. In, you know, I think 1900. Yeah. And the next woman, when do you think, okay, let's do a fun game. When, what year do you think the next woman was admitted to the Institute of Electrical Engineers after Hertha? Uh, 1946. 1958. Wow. 60 years later. Wait, isn't this the same? Wasn't she also admitted to the Royal Society and then no one was admitted until like 60 years? No women were admitted till 60 years later. Um, Maybe that's someone else. <laughs> I don't think she was. I don't think she was ever admitted. She got a bunch of she had a really weird relationship with the Royal Society of them like not letting her do certain things but letting her do other things. I don't think she was ever admitted. I think she was probably one of the first people to try to be in the Royal Society as a woman. Yeah. Don't you remember when we did trivia in the first year? Uh-huh. It was something about, like, my first question was about the Royal Society, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think it was Hertha, but she was the first person, she was not accepted. Oh, okay, right. I kind of am remembering this now. Yeah. Okay, go on, Uh, sorry. We'll get to it. It's, it's, the (laughs) Royal Yeah, I remember We we do a lot of shitting on the Royal Society, but they, they deserve it. Yeah, they do. (laughs) Historically, they deserve it. Well, and you know what? It's okay because, like, they're still so freaking big and, like, Mm -hmm. meaningful as a society in science that they really should be owning this crap they did a hundred years ago, which I'm sure they have, but it's just, like... But we're we're not going to let them forget. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Cool. <laughs> Our war against the Royal Society. Yeah. Okay. So by the late 19th century, her work in the field of electrical engineering was gaining international and domestic recognition. In the International Congress of Women held in London in 1899, she was in charge of presiding over the physical science section. So she was, you know, getting to be a big enough name that... Yeah. They were like, oh, she's going to be in charge of this the whole physical science section. Wow. She also spoke at the International Electrical Con- Congress in 1900 in Paris. And it was her success in Paris at this conference that allowed the British society or that kind of caused the British Association for the Advancement of Science to allow women to serve on various committees in their organization. Oh. Break and barriers. For yeah, other people. Hell yeah. Uh, during this time, she tried to present her paper entitled The Mechanism of the Electric Arc before the Royal Society, but was uh, not allowed yes. to present the work herself because of her sex. Right. This is so she couldn't even speak to, to the Royal Society. Ugh, what assholes. So in 1901, John Perry, who was a renowned electrical engineer, read her paper before the Royal Society instead. Right, right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In 1902, well, she published The Electric Arc, which was a summary of her research on the topic. And this work really cemented her place in the field of electrical engineering. Um, and it was widely received and also was like published for a long period of time. It was kind of like a, a main text. For, okay. about electrical art lighting for a long time. But there were still, she was still not receiving much regard by traditional scientific societies like the Royal Society. Ugh. Like, okay, so her work is good enough, but she literally can't even speak to you mm-hmm, as a society. Mm-hmm. Like, yep. what is that? Where the cognitive dissonance, I mean, what uh-huh. are these people thinking? People have to do, like, logical loops around themselves to try to justify all this. 
So John Perry, who had previously presented her paper to the Royal Society, proposed that Hertha Ayrton should be a fellow of the Royal Society in 1902. However, her application was denied by the council, who decreed that married women were not eligible to be fellows. Right. Because they had no legal standing in the law. Essentially, once you were married in under British law, you were like a non-entity. And they're like, well, if you're if you don't exist, you can't be a member of the Royal Society. It's all it's not our fault that legally you don't exist and have no rights. Sorry, you don't exist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, actually, you don't exist. That's sorry. Come back to us when you exist and maybe we'll think about it. Ugh, that's disgusting. (laughs) However, eventually, they allowed her to read her paper entitled The Origin and Growth of Ripple Marks before the Royal Society, making her the first woman to read a paper before the Royal Society. Ugh, baby steps, But she doesn't exist, so it's just really like an empty pulpit that they all sat. Um, She later then published her paper in... Um, on the origins and growth of ripple marks in the proceedings of the Royal Society. Okay, okay. Progress. In 1906, she was the first woman to win a prize from the Royal Society. Oh. She was awarded the Hughes Medal for her work on the motion of ripples in sand and water and for her work on the electric art. And the Hughes Medal is given, quote, in recognition of an original discovery in the physical sciences, particularly electricity and magnetism, or their applications. And this award was specifically um, without regard to gender or, like, something else. But how can she receive it if she doesn't exist? I know. Why give an award to some not to a non-entity? Wait, if the award can be genderless, why can't everything else? (laughs) Because if you're a member, you have to physically be there and you don't exist. Uh, I mean, I don't know. You'd think these people would be smart. You'd think so. (laughs) But I mean, like, also the same thing was like, why are you giving man of the year awards to women there should be some like there's like some cognitive dissonance where it's like you should realize that you should probably not call it that if you're gonna give it to women like they can't they can logic through like electrical arcs but not through like Like giving an award to a woman yeah i know these are hard problems to solve (laughs) uh so yeah so the hughes medal as of 2018 She was, uh, Hertha was only one of two women ever to receive this annual award. Wow. Ever. Mm Mm-hmm. Hey, Royal Society, you still got some problems. Uh, yeah. Uh, hey, Royal (laughs) Society. (laughs) We're taking you to task. (laughs) Oh, man. So Hertha was not alone in being a female physicist who was rejected by scientific societies. Marie Curie, who had already won a Nobel Prize, was refused admission to the French Academy of Sciences. And based on being both physicists, both married to other physicists, and both having been snubbed by their relative societies, Hertha and Marie Curie became great friends. um, And and after both of their husband died later on, they spent summers together with their children in the Hampshire coast. In fact... After Marie Curie was involved in a large scandal, it was a stupid scandal. Yeah. But nevertheless, the French press like got all excited about it. You can listen to our episode if you want to know more. Yeah. Um, she hid out with Hertha on the Hampshire coast for the summer to try to like avoid the paparazzi. <laughs> uh, the French were terrible to Marie Curie. Yeah. <laughs> they were so, so bad. Yeah. Um, in 1908, William Ayrton died. Uh, I know, I know. It's sad. I think he was, I don't know how much older he was than her, but I imagine a bit older. Yeah, he was already widowed and had like a teen daughter, right? When they met. I don't know how old the daughter, I don't know how old the kid was. (laughs) I just made that up. Just assumes he has a teen daughter. (laughs) Uh, 
then, okay, so now during the early days of World War One, chlorine, phosphine, and mustard gases were being used as weapons. A great oh, time to oof, be alive. God. And yeah. so Hertha used the principles of wave motion that she had developed in her earlier paper on the motion of ripples in sand to yeah. invent the Ayrton fan, uh, which oh. used wave motion to expel poisonous gases from <gasps> war trenches. Ooh. Oh, wait, like get them out of the trench. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So like Sorry, I was she made, she like, like constructed yeah. these fans that were shaped in such That's a way so cool. that you could, they kind of created this like vortex of the air below wow. them and it would push air out yeah and then it would pull a f- fresh air from behind into the trenches wow cool yeah that's awesome and Did so they use her f- them? <laughs> well her fan was dismissed at first Ugh. but eventually accepted um, and the British eventually manufactured over a hundred thousand of these fans and distributed <gasps> them to the men fighting in trenches to try wow, to provide no better idea. air for them. Yeah, that's amazing. So the Ayrton fan, yeah, helped keep okay. chlorine gas from people's lungs. Wow, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's you. I think it's it's really interesting when you like read read a someone's paper or like the title of the paper like her paper on the motions of ripple in water and sand and you're like what a- what is what applications are there to this like how yeah. specific but then the applications are like we kept people from dying of mustard gas in the I trenches and you're like well that is very applied wouldn't but, i think yeah you could connect those you don't always know what the application Mm-mm. is which is why it's frustrating when people are like, why are you doing this? And it's like, mm-hmm. we don't Shrimp know. On treadmills. But it's a discovery that could be important for other things later. I would like my stuff to be more applied. But then I'm like, you know, maybe it will be. Maybe I'll get gases out of trenches with my snail parasite work. You never know. <laughs> hey, <laughs> you never be. know. You never know. Um, so after World War One. Hertha spent the rest of her career kind of expounding upon these uh, vortex studies in trying to find strategies to clear out noxious gases from sewers and mines. So there was a lot of applications to her fan and to um, her discoveries. That's so cool. Later on. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, So during her career, Hertha had used her house as a center for the suffragist movement. Uh, right. She had joined the Women's Social and Political Union in 1906 and participated in marches and demonstrations. While marching to Downing Street with suffragist Emmeline Pankhurst, uh, she was attacked by a police officer. So she was in the thick, thick of this women's suffragist movement. Yeah. Sometimes so much that she f- was concerned about her career in like a male-dominated oh. field. Oh, because she was so vocal and active. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So that's scary. uh, What a time. I know. In 1913, Hertha took a woman uh, who had been on a hunger strike in prison and took women. So essentially what was happening is like women were marching and getting arrested and going to prison and then going on hunger strikes. Yeah. In prison. Yeah, And so when they got out of prison, Hertha was taking in women who had been on hunger strikes and nursing them back to health. Yeah. Uh, she also great. donated part of her inheritance, which was about 11,000 pounds in like today's money, uh, to the United Suffragists Movement. She also became the vice president of the, women's, of the United Suffragists Movement um, and her daughter became the secretary of the organization. So she was really, like, entrenched. She took her daughter to all these marches. Yeah. um, So they were both, like, very involved. Hertha helped also found the National Union of Scientific Workers in 1920 and the International Federation of University Women in 1919. So she was big on, you know, kind of unionizing and rights and having women have a say in how they were treated in the workforce. Yeah, good for her. And all those women. All those women, yeah. 
on August 26, 1923, she died of blood poisoning caused by an insect bite. What? In Isn't England? that strange? You think like, it was like a tick, maybe? Like a tick disease? Well, I, I mean, like blood poisoning. It must have been some insect bite that got really infected and then caused blood poisoning. Isn't that how blood poisoning works? Just like I don't know what an infection that gets in your is. I think it's an infection that gets in your bloodstream. Oh, okay. Blood poisoning. Ugh. Yeah, that would make sense because, like, there mm. are very few deadly... I mean, there's no, like, deadly insects, are there? No. So it's it's sepsis. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So Yikes. caused, I guess, originally by... A Some kind of bite. Okay. Insect bite that went bad. Whew. Oh, man. It's a rough way to go. That sucks. Yeah. Oof. So, I know. So, Gross. altogether, Hertha was an activist, an inventor, a mathematician, and a scientist. She patented 26 inventions, published dozens of papers, and wrote a definitive book on electric arc lighting. She broke down barriers for women constantly, including being the first member of the Institute of Electrical Engineers and the first woman to receive a Hughes Prize from the Royal Society. She was propelled forward to break these barriers by the generosity and faith of other women, and she used her privilege later in life to try and do the same. And yeah. that is the story of Hertha Ayrton. Oh, man. I'm so glad we finally did that. That's an yeah. awesome... She's awesome. Yeah, she's a very cool lady. Yeah. Um, and it's... I, I don't know if it's a rags to riches story, but I think a lot of the stories that we do talk about are people who start off wealthy and that they right. have all those advantages and that what al allows them to kind of break these barriers right, is because they right. come from the right part of society. And so it's nice to have some stories where you see people who started off with no money and very poor and were still able to make it. Like they're only yeah, able they... to make it because they really had like the whole community of women yeah. supporting mm -hmm. them. Um, yeah. But it's nice yeah. to see. Yeah, that's really, really cool. Yeah. I like her. Yeah, she's great. She seems sassy. I feel like she um she just comes up a lot. She like, does. In a weird she's got way. her hands I've in all the pots. Her. Yeah, like she just knew so many other scientists at the time that I always see her name like and they were friends with Hertha Ayrton. <laughs> like mm -hmm. she must have been fun. Yeah. Or, like just like really nice or cool to hang out with or something. I mean, great. she seems like a, a fiery, occasionally crude personality. And who doesn't want to hang out with that type of person? <laughs> occasionally crude. <laughs> I love it I so I would much. love to, like, hear what she would say. You know? Yeah. I'm just, like, I want to hear her dirty jokes. Means. Yeah. In the 1900s. What? <laughs> early 1900s. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows what that would be? Maybe she talked about her pantaloons. <laughs> Did they wear those? I don't know. I don't even know what a pantaloon is, not going to lie. Like, I don't technically know what that is. Pantaloon. All right. Okay. We're ready for next section. Work, 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 work. All right, and this is, as usual, our Women Who Work section where we discuss uh, badass ladies making history today. Woo -woo. And Emlyn, I got a big, I got a group, I got a group of ladies. <laughs> a group of ladies? I, I love, uh, is it a, a binder full of ladies? No, 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 no. Okay. Um, so as the new year begins and COVID vaccines circulate throughout the world, uh -huh. I wanted to see, like, I looked up, I was like, hey, are there, there's got to be, like, women working on these vaccines, right? And, yes. like, contributing, whatever. Yes. Well, it turns out women are, are actually in charge of these vaccines. And, like, 
it's a bunch of lady scientists who are basically yes. responsible for all of the major vaccines that are now yes. circulating throughout the world. In collaboration with other scientists, of course, yes. because to do anything like these projects, so many people are involved. Yeah, but, this is definitely um, not a single genius no, type no, situation. Not at all. But I wanted to give a shout out to like four women who really like made major contributions. And so I these are going to be short, but just mm-hmm. like, um, but yeah, all four of these ladies have been, they've had articles written about them, they've been in interviews, and they've just had major roles. So, okay. So the it's first like a little one, tapas platter of... Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So the first is Dr. Kizmikia Corbett, who is a research fellow at the National Institute of Health. And she was a key scientist in the creation of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. Nice. Um, She's been... So this is the one that I think Dr. Fauci... It's his team of researchers since it's at okay. the NIH, you know, gotcha. our big Institute of Health. Mm-hmm. But she's been working there at the Vaccine Research Center since 2014. And she actually began studying coronaviruses even before COVID-19 outbreaks. So she... Oh. Yeah. So OG. her research was like really crucial to getting on top of this vaccine immediately once it became clear there this was going to be a terrible pandemic right i'm going to go on a, a very short tangent this okay. is or not tangent tirade this okay. is why it's so important that we fund infectious disease research about like any disease. emerging yeah. diseases that maybe yes. are, don't seem like a big deal now or aren't infecting humans or yes like because once you get a spiller event, you want to have that information so that that's the only reason we probably were able to so quickly create a vaccine is we already knew about coronaviruses in yeah, some respect. Exactly. And that's why she was picked to be on the mm-hmm. team to create the Moderna vaccine yep. is because she already she had the expertise. Already, yep. Um, Love it. And so, yeah, so she uh, sort of co-led the creation of the mRNA Moderna vaccine with her colleague, Dr. Barney Graham. And she's also been working hard to rebuild trust in vaccines since they started releasing them. And like, even before, you know, just Mm -hmm. a lot of people are skeptical of all these new vaccines. And so she's been working hard to do a lot of like science communication about vaccines, which is really, really crucial as well. Okay. Then the second woman, and all these are amazing and maybe we'll cover them more in detail one day. They all have like a cool history and story, but Anyway, just trying to not take 20 minutes. <laughs> um, so the second woman I want to give a shout out to is pr- Professor Sarah Gilbert, who has been credited for designing the Oxford vaccine or being one oh, okay. of the major contributors to the AstraZeneca slash Oxford mm. University vaccine, which is not one of the ones being distributed throughout the U.S., but I think it's being distributed in other countries. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think it got approved in India or something. Yeah, yep. Mm -hmm. So she studied malaria for a long time before moving on to research Ebola vaccines uh, starting in 2014. And she was like, I think they were in the even second phase or some phase trial of an Ebola vaccine when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And in this article I read, it was like they saw a paper where um, a group of researchers in China had described what the vac- what the COVID-19 virus is structured like and everything. And that night, she and a colleague designed their vaccine for COVID-19. <laughs> of like course. it took them a night. And this was in April, and it's taken oh this God. long. Like, that's just to show how long it takes just to test, create, actually create and test these things. But yeah, make sure you're not giving somebody something dangerous. Too. Yeah. Yeah. 
And that vaccine is different from the ones in the U.S. It's a double-stranded DNA vaccine, which is a bit more typical Mm -hmm. of a type of vaccine, um, but seems to be as effective potentially. Like early studies were only saying 70% effective, but now I think they might be up to 90. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But so that's Professor Sarah Gilbert, who's responsible for kind of designing or co-designing the Oxford vaccine in England. Um, The third woman is Dr. Catherine Jensen, who has been leading Pfizer's mRNA coronavirus vaccine team throughout the whole pandemic. Um, And so she is based, she's kind of responsible for that whole group and the creation of that vaccine uh, which is also being distributed throughout the U.S. And let's see, before this, she led the charge in developing the Gardasil vaccine, which guards against HPV. I got that. I have that. Thank you. I know. I And then this article I read, like, people at Pfizer were like, no, like, we don't really need this vaccine or, like, this isn't that important to, like, put money into. And she was a huge <laughs> advocate for it. And I just like, oh, my God, like, that's reducing cancer rates in women. Yeah, so. women getting cervical cancer really isn't that important to us. <laughs> uh, Thanks. Insane. Okay, and so the fourth woman I want to give a shout out to is uh, Catalin Carrico, who, Dr. Catalin Carrico, who she has actually spent decades researching the use of synthetic mRNA um, in fighting diseases. Okay. And so her research on the use of mRNA um, in vaccines, mm. which these are... So, sorry, the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccine are both mRNA vaccines, which is actually yes. a new vaccine technology, which is sort of why some people are, like, freaking out about it. But it's mm-hmm. just as safe as other vaccines. Um but she, but Catalin Carrico has spent her whole career basically researching how to make this type of vaccine and how to make them effective and safe um, with her colleague Drew Weissman, uh, her major mm-hmm. collaborator. And so, this, the work that she's done throughout her whole career is foundational to all of the research and vaccines that were made this year so quickly. And like, Absolutely. without her research they wouldn't have been able to design these vaccines at Pfizer and at NIH and so hopefully she and Drew Wiseman will win a Nobel Prize like yeah for sure absolutely I think like or just gain some sort of recognition for the work that they've done um because kind of like we were just saying like they were researching these things and Maybe there would be an application one day, mm-hmm. like maybe someone would want to use it in a vaccine and hello, all of a sudden it's like the most necessary technology yeah. and was crucial to making a very fast vaccine yes. because you can easily manipulate mRNA sequences. Um, so even if there's maybe like a new variant potentially this is a type of vaccine that we can change very quickly and Mm -hmm. produce like new vaccine types for new variants and stuff so anyway those are our four ladies that are at the forefront of all these new vaccines that are coming out um and just wanted to highlight how how women are contributing to like saving the world right now i basically i loved that well, especially, yeah. I mean, I think people are, are a little, people have been a little bit freaked out by the mRNA v- vaccines because these are the first mRNA vaccines that we have actually made yeah. in full production. But this technology right. has been, as you were saying, like being developed for, for a while yeah, and, and like been tested to be safe and all that stuff. It's just that we haven't needed to create a vaccine this quickly right yeah and like i don't know since polio or something like that Um, yeah and it's possible like maybe they're not as effective as other vaccines because mm -hmm. the way they work is like 
you expose a body to the mRNA, then the body itself will start to make that protein on the outside of like cells and then the immune system responds to that versus Mm -hmm. other vaccines where you literally just inject like the inactivated version of a of a virus or bacteria or something um but yeah i think that you know maybe that's why they're not effective in everyone or something but Mm -hmm. i think they still have high efficacy and they seem to be easy to manipulate which might which is going to be necessary if the virus is like a rapid mutator which it seems to be (laughs) well also Um, from my understanding it's easy it's a faster process to ramp up and get and make high amounts of doses which is extremely important at this point to be able to keep up with demand and get people vaccinated as quickly as possible yeah mrna those it can be made much quicker so that is amazing yeah anyway it was really cool to see all these leaders were for all these different vaccine vaccines were women. I was like, whoa, that's actually like, I was surprised, Mm -hmm. but happy to see that. Not surprised that women could do it. No. Yeah. They're like, they seem they're leading the teams for, you know, all of these vaccines. And then they're also integral in the, technology that we needed in order to make these vaccines as quickly as we did that is awesome i love it so much Ah! (laughs) i'm like really again once again three cups of coffee no food um yeah yeah love it (laughs) all right well this was our first episode of the new year happy new year everybody happy Um, new year thank you so much for tuning in and uh, if you like the the pod, please rate, review, subscribe, share it on Twitter, tell your friends. Um, we love we love having interactions with our audience and getting new listeners. That's really yeah. really lovely. It's awesome. Thank you also to Caitlin yeah. Friesen for our awesome art and Artichoke for our theme music. And as always, Ooh. and even in this year, twenty twenty one, twenty twenty one, go stimulate yourself. yourself. Yeah, bye. <laughs> bye. Boy circa 1820, she ran.